This podcast is available in video at fpcgulfport.org and fpcgulfport on YouTube. During the housing boom of the early 2000s, there was a construction company on the East Coast that had won a very significant contract. They won a very significant contract to build this brand new subdivision of homes. Now, after they had won the contract, they had brought all their top engineers and architects and other folks together to meet and discuss how things were going to go down right before they broke dirt. Now, at that meeting, there was a young man. He was this brash young engineer. And as he heard the schedules and the plans, he got increasingly red-faced, frustrated by what he was hearing. He said, this is going to take too long. It's going to be too costly. We can do better. Give me a a hammer, give me a saw, I'll do it all myself. Now, in hearing that, you might chalk that up to youthful arrogance, and the other individuals at the table, they may have done that. All I know is how they responded. They responded in this way. The next day, when this young man went out to the job site to begin the construction, he expected there to be a lot of other folks there. After all, that was the plan. But what he found out was that he was the only one there, except that there was a box A box had been set apart, and as he walked up to the box, he saw three things in the box. There was a hammer, there was a saw, and there was a note. And that note had two words. Can you guess what they said? Good luck. The other individuals, they knew that you can't do all the work by yourself. They knew that building a home, let alone an entire subdivision, requires the efforts, the commitments, the time, talents, resources of a multitude of individuals. You need a whole crew to construct even one home, let alone a subdivision. One person can't build a subdivision any more than you can fill an orchestra with one person playing all the instruments. One person can't build a subdivision any more than one person can go out on the baseball diamond and be the catcher and the pitcher and the shortstop, the infield and the outfield altogether. It doesn't work that way. These things, these examples, other examples, they all speak to this idea that teamwork requires a team. It requires a multitude of people all taking their giftedness and their talents and yoking them together for the common good. Well, guess what? The same holds true for churches. The local church is never a function of any one person's efforts. By definition, by necessity, the church is a composite of the giftedness of a multitude of members and not just one, a multitude of those who lend their gifts and talents to a unified outcome. Now, this church, does anyone know how old this church is? 1899, you're exactly right. So how old does it make it? 122 years old, something like that? 122 years old. Across the decades, for a century or more, God has used men and women to do his kingdom work here in Gulfport. In a microcosm, this church exists This church exists because God has used men and women and their gifts and talents and resources to build and contribute to it across more than 120 years of ministry. No one person, no one pastor, no one session, no one diaconate can even dare lay claim to even a small portion of the glory that is God's alone, for He is the one who has connected all these people to this great outcome of which we are enjoying and benefiting from in our day. Now, the Apostle Paul, when he wrote to the Philippians, the Philippians, they were part of a church that was not 122 years old. In fact, it was probably was 122 weeks old. This was a young church. This was a church plant that he had helped to start. But his message to the Philippians is the same message we've been talking about so far this morning. He says, look, there's a lot of people who come together to bring their giftedness to bear. And he's going to specifically name some of them. 
Romans 16, he's naming person after person, men and women. He's naming all these people, and he's saying, look, this church, the church benefits and grows on the backs of a composite of different individuals, fellow laborers who work together, men and women alike, for the glory of God and the advancement of his kingdom. And he says to the Philippians, it's to be true of you not only yesterday, but in the days yet to come. You're going to rely on a multitude of giftedness. So begin to look for those gifts, nurture them, and put them to use. Okay, let's look at verse 1. I'll cover verse 1, then we'll just kind of work our way through the chapter as our time allows. Verse 1, Therefore, my beloved, longed for brethren, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, beloved. You know, a couple of weeks ago we noted... At the start of chapter 3, if you were to go back to chapter 3, chapter 3 started with the word finally. It almost looked like Paul was just about done. So it's finally, and if you just read that, you'd think, okay, he's going to start you know, wrapping up. It's kind of like when you wish a pastor would just wrap it up. Paul made it look like in chapter 3 that he was just about done. But then, then he got this inspiration. And he went on for a whole chapter giving them warnings about the sort of dangerous false teachers and false doctrines and wolves that were out there, and he told them what to be careful about. So with that said, that's what he did in chapter 3. Well, here, at the first verse of chapter 4, the first verse is a transition point, and he summarizes everything that he just warned them about in chapter 3, and he says, look, the wolves are there, the false teachers are there, the doctors are there, what do I want you to do? I want you to stand fast. He talks about his loved ones, his brethren, his joy and crown. He says, look, stand fast. It's not a matter of if the false teachers are coming. They are. Some are probably already in your midst. But, but you, you are called to stand fast upon what? Upon that which is true. Upon the rock of the word as it was shared and taught by Paul and as they had in what we call the Old Testament. They were called to stand upon truth. Now, I will tell you. In my observation in pastoral ministry, the hardest part, the hardest part of ministry from the pulpit, it's not getting people to nod their heads. If you say enough propositional truth, people will nod their heads. If we're Baptists, we shout amen. We will accept what is true. We will nod our heads to it. We'll say amen. We'll do all that sort of thing. That's not the hard part. That's the easy part. The hard part is to get them to stand on that truth when the world comes knocking at their door. The hard part is not in the context of a church building, getting us to nod our heads that something is true. The hard part is on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and the like, for you and I to stand on that truth when the world makes it difficult. What is true is not always what is popular. What is true is not always and even rarely what the world wants to hear. And so, if you nod your head and hear and say, amen, hear, yay, that's good, that's great. But the question is, what do you do on Monday and Tuesday in your conversations, social media, what have you? You and I already know. If you take a lot of the propositional truth of this book and you just quote it verbatim on your social media, you know some of the responses you'll get. Especially should you foray into, I don't know, marriage, gender, things, things like that. Increasingly, the world calls good evil, it calls men women, it calls right wrong. Many of the truths of Scripture are being turned on their ear. So what would Paul want us to do? He says, you've got the truth. Your objective is to stand upon it. And that's easy when the world is applauding you, but they rarely will. Because the words of this book are an offense to their ears. So whether it's in Philippi, whether it's in Ephesus, whether it's in Gulfport, stand fast on what you have been taught. 
All right, let's look at verses 2 and 3. Verse 2. I implore Euodia, I implore Syntyche, to be of the same mind in the Lord. And I urge you also, true companion, to help these women who labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. When Paul's letters were written, they were usually passed. It took days or weeks for them to get to the church to which he wrote. Certainly that was the case with this letter. Well, when the letter finally showed up, when some breathless messenger took the letter and gave it to the leaders of the church in Philippi, what do you think they did with it? Well, what we know that they did is that they would read the letter aloud before the congregation. And the reason they read the letter aloud is because in this context, not everyone was literate. In order to understand what the letter said, it needed to be read for everyone to hear. Now, let's say that you're in Philippi. Say you're in Philippi, this letter, you know, this breathless messenger has run in and got the message, and it's to be read before the whole body, and everyone's excited because we finally heard from Paul. This guy we've been praying about, that we care about, that we love, we've sent him supplies and support. We have a word. Everyone, Paul wrote to us, we got a word. So that comes in, and it's to be read. And pretend you're sitting there, and as the letter is read, all of a sudden, you hear your own name. Now, if that happened, your ears would perk up immediately. You'd be like, what does Paul have to say? Well, in verses 2 and 3, he identifies three people by name. He talks about two women. One was Iodia, the other Syntyche, and there's a man named Clement. Now, what do you have to say about these individuals? If you're Iodia, Syntyche, or Clement, you hear your name, and you wait. What's Paul have to say? Well, there's good news and there's bad news, especially for Iodia and Syntyche. Now, the good news, the good news is this. Paul identified all those that he wrote about, all those that he named. He says, these are my co-laborers in the gospel. These are fellow workers. These are my peers and my colleagues in ministry. These are ones whose names are written in the book of life. And if you heard that, if you heard that, that would bring joy to your heart that Paul would regard you in that way. This is the Apostle Paul. This is the Apostle Paul. And he says, if you're Yodia, Sintike, and Clement, that you're a co-laborer with him. He says, you're not inferior to me, but you are a co-laborer, a co-heir of the promises, brother and sister in Christ. Now, that would have been encouraging for them, but it's also significant, not only for them, but for us. Because among other things, it signifies that Paul viewed the labors of both the men and the women in the church in Philippi as necessary and important. Paul was writing to the church, and he identifies the labors of Iodia, Syntyche, and Clement, and other fellow workers. He says these, these were all co-laborers in the gospel. Paul was validating, valuing the ministry of both the men and women of the Philippian church. He was valuing and validating it both, these gospel labors. Now, what sort of gospel labors are being referred to here? Well, that we don't know. We don't know exactly what's referred to here. Paul doesn't clarify the nature of this gospel service. All he says is that it's important. It's valuable. It's not peripheral or secondary. It's valuable to the church. Now, there's at least two quick takeaways we can see here. First off, in Paul's eyes, men and women, they're equally valued by both Paul and by God. Now, they may have different roles. Yes, God may have ordained different roles, and yet both roles contribute to the same outcome. You know, on a base ball diamond, the pitcher is not the catcher, the catcher is not the pitcher. If they try to switch jobs, it's not going to work out. Both are necessary. Both are important for the success of the team. The same is true in, in the church. And Paul says, Euodia, Syntyche, Clement, and then he refers to other laborers or other fellow workers. He says, these are my co-laborers in the gospel. These are my co-laborers in Christ, and their names are written in the book of life. If you were Euodia or Syntyche and you heard that, how that would have encouraged you. 
to know that Paul and the God who sent him valued you in that way. Did not look down upon what you did, but exalted it and found it necessary and important in the life of the church. This would have been wonderful for them to hear. So that's the good news. Now, the bad news such as it is, it's not really bad news, it's more of a critique than anything else. But in verse 2, it appears that although Euodia and although Syntyche are both laborers in the gospel, their names are written in the book of life. These are godly, good women of the church who are saved. At the same time, in verse 2, it appears that these two women had been in some sort of disagreement. They had had a disagreement in recent days because Paul identifies that. He says, I want to implore my sister Euodia, I want to implore Euodia, and I implore Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Paul, from where he was sitting in house arrest in Rome, had evidently heard the sort of thing you really don't want to hear, that there was some trouble in the church. Everything was going good in Philippi, but two of the ladies were having an issue. And whatever that issue was, and it's not overtly declared here, but whatever the issue was, it was significant enough that it was hampering the work of the church, and it was significant enough that news of it had found its way hundreds of miles over to Paul. It wasn't a small thing. At the same time, we don't know what it is. Now, some think that, well, maybe Euodia and Syntyche, maybe they had a different theology. Maybe their doctrinal disagreements or misunderstanding. Maybe their problem was theology. I don't think that was the case because Paul doesn't identify any sort of doctrinal issue as the problem. Ordinarily, he does. Paul usually, if there's problems in the church that involve matters of doctrine, he usually identifies what the doctrine is. That's not what we see here. He's not trying to nudge one of the women to adopt a more orthodox teaching. Rather, he simply implores both of them. He says, I implore Euodia and I implore Syntyche to be of the same mind. What most commentators take away from that is that he's referring to some sort of personality conflict, for lack of a better phrase. You know, in large families, siblings don't always get along. Small families, siblings don't always get along. Sometimes you'll have brothers fighting with brothers and sisters with sisters and brothers with sisters and the like. If that's true in families of flesh and blood, if that's true in families of flesh and blood, it's going to be true in a church as well. If you and I can have fights and arguments with those who share our flesh and blood, those in our families by birth, then of course if we come into a church setting, there's going to be times when we have disagreements with those who are part of our church family. It's going to happen. And the reason it's going to happen is because we're all sinners. None of us has a monopoly on truth. None of us has a monopoly on righteousness. We're all sinners inclined to sin. And when we do, it can rub others the wrong way. Even those that we love, even those in church, we can step on their toes or they can step on ours. Well, whatever the problem that Euodia and Syntyche had with one another, again, it was causing dissension. And so Paul implores them. He says, I implore you. That's sort of like Paul getting down on his knees and saying, oh, for the love of all that's right and good and holy in the universe, please stop what you're doing. He says, I implore you and I implore you. There's no sign of favoritism here. He's just saying, look, you've got to get on the same page here. Of common mind is the phrase that he uses. He's not resolving a theological issue. He's just saying, you all need to get along because your quarrel is affecting your Christian witness. Even as Christians, we can be stubborn and grumpy, critical at times. Now, that's normal just to the human existence. But when we bring that into a church setting and we don't take efforts to deal with that, in time, we can become known far more for our grumpiness or our cynical nature than we are for our gentleness or for our faith or for any of the attributes that are so much more desirable. And that's a shame when it happens. 
what are you known for? Not just in the world around you and not just in your family at home. In the church, what are you known for? Is a spirit of love and grace and faithfulness or maybe cynicism, maybe grumpiness, what have you? Well, let's look at verses 4 and 5 to see what Paul says we should be known for. Verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. All right, in order to understand these verses, you have to realize that they're married up to the previous verses. So Paul's been talking about discord in the local church. He's been talking about what's been going on, some problem between Yodi and Syntyche that's causing strife in the local body. And so when he says, let your gentleness be known to all men, this is not an abstract fortune cookie proverb he just throws in there. It relates to everything else he's just been talking about. They had been known for something other than gentleness. And Paul says, no, that's not the way it's to be. Let your gentleness be known. Yodia, Syntyche, Clement, everyone else in Philippi. Let the world know you by your love, your love and affection for one another and the world outside your doors. So that's what we see in verses 4 and 5. It's a continuation of what we see in verses 2 and 3. It suggests that in Paul's eyes, Yodia and Syntyche's problem was that they were grumpy when they should have been joyful. You know, when you think about what we've been given, when you think about the beauty outside these doors, when you think about the loved ones in your life, when you think of some of the good experiences you've had, when you think of the air you're breathing, we do have a lot to be excited about. We've got a lot to rejoice about. And so it's a crime to an extent when we go through life with a frown on our face. When we go through our life caustic towards others, that doesn't demonstrate faith or grace or gentleness or any of these things. And Paul wants us, God wants us to do something different. If you remember in Luke 10, in Luke 10, Jesus, he was teaching a group. And there was a young woman who comes and sits down at his feet. And her name was Mary. So Mary sits down and listens to Jesus to teach. Well, there was another woman. Mary had a sister. Does anyone remember what her name was? What was that? Martha? There was Mary and her sister Martha. Now, when you think of Martha, those of you who know the story, what comes to mind? What attributes do you remember about Martha? Let me share very briefly the story and bring it back to mind. Mary was listening to Jesus teach. Well, Martha has been working, preparing meals, cleaning, doing various things that needed to be done by someone. And then she approaches Jesus and has the equivalent of this on her lips. She says, It's not fair. I'm working. Mary, she's just sitting, sitting down and listening and isn't even concerned about everything that's got to go on. Mary's just taking it all in. Meanwhile, I'm left to do all the work. It's not fair. You know that Martha was grumpy when she was saying these things. Well, Jesus, how did he respond? How did Jesus respond? What we see in Luke 10 is that he takes her aside and then he's going to repeat her name twice. This is a sign of great affection. He says, Martha... Martha. This is a way of drawing someone in with words. Martha, Martha, you are worried and troubled about many things. You're anxious, you're worried, you're troubled, you're grumpy, you're frustrated, you're all these things. But, but one thing is needed, and Mary has chosen that good part. Life is always going to be full of toil and trouble, work and effort, good times, bad times. If you're looking for things to be grumpy about in your personal life, There's some undoubtedly today. There will be some undoubtedly tomorrow. Now, it's true also in church. If you're looking now or in the future for something to be grumpy about, you'll have opportunity. 
there will be legitimate reasons to be grumpy about something because the whole church from the pastor on down is filled with, with sinners. But what Paul was writing to the Philippians and to us by extension is he's saying that's not the reputation you want to have where you're consistently grumpy or cynical or critical. That doesn't help the church. If you're fighting and quarreling about different things, if you're not on the same page, how is the church going to advance? He says, stop that. Instead, let your gentleness be known. Your gentleness be known to all men. When you think of gentle, you think of those who are long-suffering, who bear with the sins and mistakes of others, with those who endure and are patient and kind in the way that they respond to one another. You and I have so much to rejoice about in the life that we've been given. We should be gentle as a response. All right, let's look at our last verses, verses 6 and 7, as Paul is going to conclude this line of thought. Verse 6. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds through Christ Jesus. Be anxious for nothing. You know, anxiety can be brutal. In pastoral ministry, you encounter anxiety and depression more often than you encounter anything else. They are different. Anxiety is not depression. Depression is not anxiety. And yet, these are the main things that people suffer from. And when they suffer from them, it feels like they're weighed down. They're weighed down, and it feels like their life or their Christian witness is crippled as a result. This world will give you a lot to be anxious about. Some point in your life, a doctor will call you and give you news you don't want. At some point, whether it's already happened in the past or whether it's still in the future, at some point you're going to have a conversation with a physician who's going to say something you don't necessarily want to hear. We're all mortal, so it's coming. There are things in our life, in the past, present, or future, that we don't necessarily want, and that's not going to change so long as we live on this mortal coil. The world will give you all manner of things to be anxious about. Even as a church, there's things we can be anxious about. Dear heavens, the past year and a half, we've had COVID. No one saw that coming, and there was no officer of this church or any church that was prepared to deal with pandemics and COVID and all the like. There's a lot to be anxious about yesterday, and there's things to be anxious about tomorrow and the days yet to come. Now, if that's true of us, if we have more questions than we have answers, it was definitely true of the Philippians. The Philippians were living under the boot of Rome in a pagan culture. This little church was in a tough situation. They were persecuted. Uh, Rome was the front end of that persecution. Does anyone remember who Caesar was at this time? The worst one, Nero. The Philippians were under the boot of Rome. They had a lot to be anxious about. And I'll bet you that there was church meetings and gatherings when people like Clement and Epaphroditus and Euodia and Syntyche and the like gathered around and they vented and they expressed their worry and their concerns about what tomorrow would bring. And we know that they were an anxious bunch because Paul speaks that anxiety head on. He says, stop it. Be anxious about nothing. And if you feel anxiety coming on, he was telling the church, then do something that you're probably not doing. He says, bring it to God first. You know, when we have that phone call we don't like or when something happens in our life that we don't want or when there's fears about tomorrow, when there's just anxieties, whatever they might be, small or great, our tendency is to fret and think about these things. Sometimes we get analysis paralysis. We just get frozen up by whatever's on our radar. We have all manner of coping mechanisms to deal with anxiety. But you know one of the things that we seldom do that we should do? Well, it's right here. He says, be anxious for nothing, but through prayer and supplication, let your requests be known to God. He says, when you worry about tomorrow, when you're anxious, bring it 
to the one who knows all things and controls all things. Sometimes we make the mistake of thinking that our anxieties could be dispelled if we just knew what tomorrow would bring. If we knew next week, next month, next year. But God won't tell you those things. Sometimes we really, all we see is dark clouds on the horizon and we wonder about what's coming, what they are bringing our way, what kind of rainfall is about to hit us. God, if He loves you, He won't tell you. And what I mean by that is this. Our faith, our faith grows out of those moments when we don't know what's going on. Not out of those moments when everything's crystal clear. Faith and anxiety are the antithesis of one another. If you're anxious in moments, trying to wonder what's going to bring and trying to understand all that's going on, then that's not a reflection of your faith and your confidence. Look, Paul knew what it was like to have terrible situations. This is a man who was beaten, he was jailed multiple times, he was shipwrecked. How often, if you were Paul, did you go, what is going on? Paul was the most important man of his age. Once Christ had gone up to heaven, Paul was the most important guy of his age. And yet, he was often in situations that he would never have chosen for himself, and he had to wonder, what's God doing? God didn't always tell him. And in those moments, Paul found that his faith grew as a result. Later on in Philippians, we'll talk about this next week, Paul said, look, I've learned the hard way. I've learned the hard way, not to try to understand everything ahead of time. I've learned just through experience how to cope with whatever life throws me, and it's done through faith. He says, I know how to be abased. I know how to abound. Everywhere in all things, I've learned to be full and to be hungry, to abound, to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Not, I can do all things because I've got my arms around it, and I understand it, I'm submitting the future to my will. No, he says, look, I'm content not because I understand it, but because Christ is on the throne. I'm content because I have a good God who watches out for me, he has the power to control everything, and so whether I'm shipwrecked, beaten in jail, what have you, it's not an accident, it's not a cosmic coincidence, God is on his throne, and I'm all right with it. That was the sort of confidence that he had. And that's why in in verse 7, he says, Look, the peace of Christ, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. He says, Be anxious for nothing, but through prayer and supplication, bring these things to Jesus and the peace of Christ that surpasses all understanding. It's better. Even if you knew all the things, this is better. The peace of Christ upon your heart that surpasses all understanding, it guards your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. If you think about the things, we're going to wrap up here momentarily, but as you think about what's coming up for you this week, this month, next year, if you think about the things that are giving you some anxiety, you may be trying to understand it desperately. What's God doing? What am I supposed to know? Well, you may have more questions than answers at the moment, but peace won't come from your understanding. Peace won't come from having all the answers. Peace won't come from having a blueprint or roadmap to what God's doing. Peace comes through your relationship with the one who is on the throne. Peace comes to a relationship with Christ. That's what Paul's saying to the Philippians. That's what he's saying to the Gulfport. In the middle of your circumstances, whatever that might be, take your anxieties to Christ. I know that sounds like religious speak. I know that sounds like a supernatural thing. Take it before Jesus and lay it before the throne. But I'm telling you, it's true. I am telling you as one who has experienced this, what it is like to unburden yourself, say, look, I don't know what COVID's going to bring next week or next month. I'm in a position to pastor a church, and there's a lot of weirdness going on in the world around me. I don't fully understand it, but he does. I'll take it to him, and then I'll do my job. I'll be content whatever comes. Because I know I'm not in charge, and I know I don't know all things, but He does, and I'm relying upon Him. That's a healthy approach. 
whatever curveballs life might throw at you, and there are a lot coming, whatever curveballs life might throw at you, God is on the throne. Run to Him in the midst of it. Let's pray. If you'd like to check out additional recordings or videos by Dr. Toby Holt, please visit our website at fpcgulfport.org. And if you're on the Gulf Coast, come join us at 11 a.m. Sundays at First Presbyterian Church of Gulfport, Mississippi.